our need for grace. And one of the one of my desires in this message is to convince you that hearing the word of God is not enough for you to recognize God's voice. That is, in the hearing of the word of God, that mere hearing, that mere hearing without the illumination of the Holy Spirit can never lead to any repentance or faith. That is, you have a broken spirit. You have a, a spirit that is dead in its sins and trespasses. If you're an unbeliever, that's, that's where you're at. That's where we all were, according to the writings of Paul. And while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ, uh, God made us alive, rising us together with Christ. So the, my point of this message here is we need grace. We have an absolute dire need for grace, and merely hearing the word of God is not enough to communicate that grace to us. It also must be experienced through Christ Jesus, by his spirit, opening our eyes to see him and to recognize him. One of the main points of that is that in this passage, in these two readings in Exodus 6 and Luke 24, we see that God himself describes to Moses that he is not uh, revealing himself as he did in the days of old with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but rather he will display himself as Yahweh. Not just uh, Elohim, not just as El Shaddai, not just as the God who is, but also as the God who is mighty and the God who brings out salvation now. Uh, Yahweh had had previously disclosed himself as El Shaddai, which is the God who reigns, or the God who is, and that declaration to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob came along with promises, but now those promises have been fulfilled, and we as believers in Jesus Christ believe that Jesus Christ was the mighty fulfillment of all of those original promises. So we're going to look at how uh, those passages tie into each other, and uh, finally we're going to look also at um, what it means that Jesus was recognized in the breaking of bread. So we're going to look at God's promises to Abraham, um, well, actually to Abram, uh, before he changed his name, and then also his reminders and uh, that he gave to the people of Israel and the deliverance that he brings about. We're going to look at this idea of doubting God. Many people who um, consider themselves Christians, many people who are Christians, believe that they should ignore their doubts. They should ignore their doubts about God because uh, you just got to believe more. You just got to believe better. I think that is foolishness. And I think that is leaving a chink in your armor uh, that will be exploited by the enemy one day. And it, and it will cause you, it, if not a stumbling, a great difficulty. You should examine your doubts and ask God's help to remove them. And what I mean by that is we doubt the Lord. We doubt the Lord's promises. We doubt the Lord's goodness. And in a very real way, we can even doubt true things about God. We can doubt that God is good. Good. Uh, if you're going through personal tragedy, if you're going through a relationship disaster, if you're going through a divorce, if you're going through uh, a weakness of character or addiction, it's very hard to see in the moment that God is good because you're considering your your circumstances, you're considering what you've experienced of God up until that point. But it's very true that God is good. 
And so the difficulty does not lie with God in changing your circumstances, but rather the difficulty lies in you beginning to look beyond your circumstances to see who he truly is, to see the point behind your sufferings. And so in these passages, we see on on the road to Emmaus, these two disciples were doubting God's salvation. We're going to look at what that means, and we're going to explore what are real doubts that we have in our life. And then finally, we're going to look at the purpose of the word and the Eucharist. Eucharist is a word that simply means thanksgiving, and it is the meal which Jesus Christ himself instituted as a sacrament for his people, that by through, through that meal, he would communicate to them his grace, and he would be in their midst dining with them. So we're going to look at how this passage in Luke 24, it talks about the word of God being a doorway or a stepping stone or a precursor to the meal that we take in communion. That's why our services and traditionally all Christian uh, liturgical elements always culminate in in the, the Eucharist or communion. It's like a good movie where the best stuff is saved for the end. Uh, if you've seen Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, which is one of the greatest films of all time, um, what, happens, what happens at the end? The Death Star is destroyed. That's the culmination of the point of Episode Four. Now, there's still other episodes which are all good as well, but that's the point of the whole movie is a crescendo at the end to demonstrate this is a, an amazing, you know, deliverance that Luke Skywalker has performed. Um, So with that in mind, we celebrate communion after the word for a particular reason. It's not just, oh, we just, you know, we like it that way and it's convenient so that people can be here. No, the, the meal that we share with Christ is done after we're illumined by his word. And so it's not until though that we see him at the table where we truly do recognize him. We see him in glimpses through the word, but the word of God, little w, is not the word of God, capital W, that is the logos of God is Jesus Christ. And he is not the Bible and the Bible is not Jesus. And it's important that you understand that distinction. So um, let's get into it. Over 400 years before Moses, God makes this promise to Abraham. Now, I don't know about you, but 400 years is a pretty long time. In fact, it's arguably longer than our country has been around. Um, Not just the, you know, Declaration, which was signed on July 4th, 1776. The Declaration of Independence, most people consider that to be the birthplace of our nation. But if you go back to around 1607, 1620, when people land in America and begin to establish what would later become settlements that become colonies, um, our country is not even 400 years old. For, For us as Americans, it's really hard to deal with the idea of 400 years. There's not a lot of things in our culture that are that old. And so this is a very long time. And if you, if you think about the accuracy with which God is prophesying these events, it's astounding. 400 years earlier, God tells Abraham that he would become a great nation and that nation would go down to Egypt and they would become afflicted. They would be put into harsh treatment. And so in Genesis 15, 13 through 14, we read, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Notice the plunder of Egypt is implicit in the first uh, initial promise of, uh, of God to Abram. And so God is coming to Abram and saying, I'm going to make you a great nation. And in this way, El Shaddai, the God who is, is coming to Abram. He's de- demonstrating himself as the God who is a promise maker. And although Egypt's going to treat them harshly, God intends to do good to them and bring them up with wealth. So if you know the story, all of the world goes through this famine. We, we talked about this last week. And Israel sends his sons, Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt. And they find out, hey, Joseph's been here all along. And he's, you know, second, the second in command king over Egypt. And, you know, they get grain and they are able to buy, you know, uh, food for their, their family so that they don't die. All of Israel goes down and lives in Egypt, and Joseph gives them the land of Goshen, which is good for uh, those who would be shepherds. So Israel comes down, and they are living in Goshen, and after Joseph dies, a few generations later, the Egyptians begin to treat the Israelites harshly. They were originally shepherds, and they take these shepherds, and they strip them of their flocks over generations, and force them to work in hard conditions. And so God speaks to Moses at this time and says that he, Moses, will see him as Jehovah or Yahweh, not simply as El Shaddai. That is the God who is powerful by what? By demonstrating his salvation. God came to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and was making promises with them, but Moses is being told by God, I was not known in the promise keeper or the promise fulfiller. I was known as the promise maker or the covenant maker. So God is telling Moses that he's going to gain this revelation of God is through the salvation itself. That is the salvation which God provides for Moses is going to demonstrate him as Jehovah, the almighty God above whom there is no other, who is a covenant maker and covenant keeper. This is promise fulfilled. This is not just promise made. And so in Exodus 6, 2 through 3, we read, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I'm the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Now that is English, but behind that God Almighty in the original is El Shaddai. And, but by the name, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, uh, that's what is called the tetragrammaton, which is tetra means four, grammaton is stroke or or letter, uh, the four letters, Y-H-W-H, which the Hebrews considered to be the sacred and holy name of God, which was lengthened to a Latinization of Jehovah. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses run around saying, we've got this thing and we're going to call God Jehovah, they at no way are saying we are proclaiming the God who saves in the midst. They're saying there's this other God who Jesus Christ wasn't and et cetera, et cetera. It's my position today that we see Jesus Christ as Yahweh in our midst, Jehovah Almighty, performing the salvation that he promised beforehand. That is who Jesus Christ is. God has listened to the cry of his people, and in so doing, he comes and decides to act. Exodus 6, 5 through 6, moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel. Do you know that the Lord always hears your groanings? The Lord always hears your groanings. He does not necessarily act right away. 
And isn't that frustrating from time to time because we're impatient, but the Lord always hears your groanings. Now, according to this narrative, uh, it may take 400 years for him to respond. I assure you that his response for you personally will be a lot quicker than 400 years, um, at least on certain things. You are always heard by the Lord, but he does not necessarily immediately act. God demonstrates his patience by putting up with Egypt's sin for 400 years. That's 10 generations in a biblical uh, system of, of accounting the years. God has put up with 10 generations of this harsh treatment of Israel. And so at this time, God has said, enough's enough, I'm coming. He says to Moses, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Again, that's Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, not capital L, lowercase O-R-D. There's a difference. If you've never examined that difference, take some time, read the first few pages of the introduction to your Bible, and you'll begin to see some important distinctions. But he says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. So God is deciding to act. He has had enough and he is coming in fury. He says in verse seven, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Now, this declaration that, that Yahweh is making to Moses to make to the people of Israel, this is a mediated message. God does not come and speak to Israel directly. Many people, they think, oh, well, if God is real, he will just tell me and he'll, his word will split the sky and then he'll speak to me and I'll know. And then God, you know, will reveal himself to me and, and I'll be fine. I'll believe in God. That is never the way that the Bible says that we are to approach the understanding of God's existence. God always works with a prophet who he has chosen beforehand to go and declare to his people. That's why we read the scriptures, because they are the writings of prophets and apostles of old. They are the writings of those people given to the church to lead her, to guide her, along, of course, being guided by the Holy Spirit uh, primarily. But those writings establish the bounds of our knowledge of God. And so those writings, which we uh, have been examining all our Christian life, those are nothing more uh, or nothing less than the authoritative word of God given to prophets and apostles to proclaim to the people of God. God does not come and declare to Israel at, uh, by himself. He proclaims to Moses and then Moses proclaims. Now in this proclamation, he's telling Moses to tell Israel, I'm going to be your God. And I'm going to give you a, a mighty place in the world. They're going to be a chosen and a special people. Now, this is an act of God's grace. Many people, when they think about the old covenant, they think, oh, that was a covenant of works and a covenant of law. And we need to reject that, uh, that we're not under law, but we're under grace. It's true that we are not held under the law anymore, but it does not mean that the the Bible in the Old Testament is to be thrown out and it doesn't apply, which is the dangerous error that many, many people make. God's grace always precedes the giving of his instruction or the giving of his law. Before God gave Israel the law at Mount Sinai, he first brought her out of Israel, uh, Egypt. 
That act of deliverance always precedes God's command. This is why as a Christian, someone who's exploring or someone who's exploring uh, the faith and as a Christian, you can never perform before you earn God's salvation. That has never been the case. And if you ever hear someone uh, telling you, you know, back in the old days under Moses, people had to earn their salvation, then they have probably not read the book of Galatians or the book of Hebrews because those two writings specifically state that the patriarchs of old, the, the prophets of old, the, the, the leaders of God's religious community have always responded in faith to God's promises, not in the obedience that comes from faith. And so as believers or as people who are exploring Christianity, you cannot clean yourself up before God performs his salvation for you. You also, it's a little bit backwards in, in, in the timeline of human history. Christ has already died before you were born. So at a cosmic level, you, you're too late. Um, but at, on a personal level, before you begin to believe that God really does offer you true, free, unlimited grace, by trusting in his son's work, before you believe that, you cannot at all perform your own righteousness, which would lead to God granting you grace. It doesn't make any sense, and it's never happened. It never happened in the scripture. It can't happen categorically, and it's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, that being said, God is making a gracious proclamation to the people of Israel. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's an amazing thing. Yahweh is coming and he's saying, "Think, consider the declaration that he's making. You are a nation trapped in military bondage, being forced to make bricks without straw and forced to build cities for the kings of Egypt right? We remember back to Nebuchadnezzar, my might and my hand have made this city. I don't think so. Uh, these people are indentured servants. They are, they're worse than indentured servants. They don't get any credit. They don't get any return from their labor. They are forced to work. And yet in the midst of their oppression, God is saying, you who are not a nation without a land of your own and who are under military captivity, I'm going to rescue you out of Egypt. And then after that, I'm going to give you this awesome house to live in. And I'm going to be there too. I'm going to put my name in the capital city. That's an amazing proclamation that God gives to these Hebrew slaves. And yet these people are not able to hear it. Why are they not able to hear it? Now, this is a great problem if we're going to believe that good news accomplishes salvation, and I do believe it does, but it takes something more than just the proclamation of the facts of God's future promise. He says, I will take you to be my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to save you, and you're going to know for certain this is the promise that God is telling Moses to give to his people. And yet what happens? God's deliverance is always accomplished without precondition, and his grace is always given before the law. And yet at this point, they are not under the law. They're not burdened by the fact that they have this standard or moral code above them, they are burdened because their ears are closed. Why are their ears closed? Verse 9, Moses spoke thus 
where he spoke that to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. The Bible teaches that before you are made again in after the image of your Savior, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and that your spirit is dead. Jesus, in John 3, talking to Nicodemus, he says, unless one be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so with the salvation that comes to you, the, the promise that's declared, it is not enough to hear the promise. Something else must happen. The people obviously need their ears open and they need the light of Yahweh's face to shine upon them, which is what they uh, require to, to come out of this place of destitution, of brokenness and of spirit. And without his grace, they cannot hear his word, nor can they believe it. It says that the people didn't listen to, the, to Moses. So how would they have listened to God, who over and over again is displayed as more terrifying and more uh, intimidating? Have you ever been in a conversation with a really confident person who asserts their uh, message? If, if Moses, who spoke kindly and gently to them, Moses, who was like them in form, and they didn't listen to him, how would it have worked if Yahweh would have come like he came at Sinai and declared, I'm about to destroy Egypt and save you. I hope you're happy. If you don't know, at Sinai, the mountain quakes and it catches on fire. And so Yahweh is doing an extremely gracious thing. You say to yourself, unbeliever, you say to yourself, well, if God was truly gracious, he would just come and speak to me. I declare to you, it would be a terrifying thing for you if the Lord himself spoke to you. He sends a graceful messenger, not that he himself is without grace, but you are definitely without the ability to hear him. So we're often just like Israel in this situation. Now, this story in 1 Corinthians 15, it says these stories were written so that we would learn what to do and what not to do. And so this story, this historical account, this narrative being interpreted in the light of Christ tells us something that we, like the people of Israel, the people of God today, currently doubt the Lord, often, many times. And in that, we pick up the story of the two on the road to Emmaus. Reminders of God's promise promised deliverance abound all around us, yet our spirits are crushed. We talked about this a few weeks ago, and I mentioned that there are stresses which you encounter in your daily life. There are stressors, rather. Um, there are things which perturb you, disturb you. They can be circumstances. They can be sinful habits that you have in yourself. They can be, uh, you know, um, emotional uh, distress, relational distress, financial difficulty. You could have just gotten fired. There are stresses and you need relief. Likewise, there are stresses and you need to believe. There are stresses which plague you and cause you to doubt, is God really good? Is God really going to be good to me? Am I like David where he says, the Lord is my shepherd, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Or is it just the case that my life is a string of disaster after another disaster? We doubt God's promise, and in doubting him, we display that we are need, in need of him to open our eyes, just like the people of Israel needed him to open their ears. Luke 24, 19 through 21, and he, being Jesus, said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. 
Now, at this point, we see, uh, and catching up to the story, we see that Jesus has just died three days before and has resurrected. Um, he has defeated death. He fully atoned on the cross. And now after this, he is going to find his disciples and proclaim this amazing surprise. Ta-da, I'm back. If you think Arnold is back, he's not back. Arnold's going to die at some point, and he will never be back. Um, but Jesus Christ really came back. Jesus Christ, according to the Gospels, according to the faith of Christianity, died a horrible death. And after that, came back to life. And so this is after, after his resurrection. This is this amazing thing that surprises every one of his disciples and surprises us. In verse 20, it says, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. These disciples are completely hopeless. Think about what they are saying. We're going we're gonna to examine three reasons why I think that they are completely hopeless. First of all, they describe Jesus as a mere man and a prophet. In all of Jesus's claiming, uh, uh, claiming or, or, or going and declaring, you're going to be my disciple, every single time he does that, there is an amazing situation where that disciple uh, does something drastic, and it shows or it, it reveals what their revelation of who Jesus Christ was. Uh, when he calls Andrew and Philip, they immediately leave their boats. Uh, when he calls Nathaniel under the fig tree, Nathaniel hears a prophecy. Jesus has a vision of Nathaniel underneath the fig tree, and Jesus declares to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, before your brother called you, I saw you under the fig. And then Nathaniel says, because because of that, Nathaniel has this revelation of it's it's a Holy Spirit uh, uh, accomplished moment. Nathaniel has this revelation: you are the Son of God, you are the Holy One of Israel. So over and over again, we see these attestations or these declarations by the disciples that Jesus Christ is not a mere man. He is God in the flesh and the Messiah. The, the full culmination of two separate threads in the Old Covenant scriptures that God needs to come and save his people, but he also needs to come and be the king in their midst. And so in this place, they're saying, you are God in the flesh. You are not just, you know, any other guy. And so they say here, he is not just a, uh, they don't declare that he is deity. They don't declare that he is the son of God. They say he was a man who was a prophet. Now, when Jesus declares to, uh, to his disciples that there are all these people talking about who he is, you know, he, he basically puts it to them in the question. And this takes place in uh, Mark 8. He says to them, you know, who do you say, or who do people say that the son of man is? They say, some say a prophet, some say Elijah. Um, Elijah was supposed to come back in, in, in Judaism. And, and they're saying, some people think you're the fulfillment, you're, you're God's, uh, you're God's prophet sent to his people. And then he puts it to them this way. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, wonderful Peter stands up and responds first. You are the son of God. And, and Jesus then praises Peter. He rewards him. He blesses him saying, you, Peter, were surely not told this by flesh and blood. It was not a human conversation that Peter had by which he recognized Jesus Christ as God in the flesh. 
it says that flesh and blood, Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but it was revealed to you by my father who is in heaven. So likewise, for them to respond and say, you haven't heard about what's been happening. There was this guy, a man who was a prophet, shows that they have lost all hope that Jesus Christ was truly the son of God. Now, this is not bad-mouthing the disciples. This is just plainly what the text says, and this is what you and I do. Although we may never fully convince ourselves or say to ourselves, oh yeah, God's not real, Jesus Christ didn't really die, I'll become an atheist, we do doubt God's ability to save over and over again, despite what our circumstances look like. These disciples had just seen Jesus Christ uh, buried, and then three days later, uh, it was he was still missing. These people are losing hope. Their circumstances shouted very loudly, this guy was not God. It took them by surprise. N.T. Wright's one of my favorite contributions that the theologian N.T. Wright has made uh, to, to my life is just the simple phrase, the, the resurrection surprised everybody. Even though Jesus Christ said that he would suffer and three days later be raised from the dead. Even though he said it multiple times, their ears were not open to hear it. This is extremely striking that they would describe him as a man who was a mighty prophet, not as we believe that he is the son of God, that, that the, the chief priests and the scribes, along with the power of Rome, crucified God in the flesh. They said he was a man, a mighty prophet. Second, they go on to say that the phrase, but we had hoped, shows that they're not hoping anymore. Those are past tense, you know, he was crucified, and then the, the con, conjunction, but they're turning to a new idea. We had hoped. It, we past tense hope. We don't still hope. They're looking for another deliverer like Moses, who's going to deal with the fact that Israel is occupied. In the Old Covenant scriptures, uh, prophet after prophet says that, that God cannot come and be in the midst of his people while they are uh, occupied. It, in Judaism at the time, it was a, an extremely uh, convincing idea that Israel cannot really be God's special people if they're either in exile away from the land or if there's another nation in the land uh, oppressing them. That is the story of First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. The, the point is that they need to get the inhabitants of the land who are not God's people out of the land. And so they're looking for another Joshua. They're looking for another Moses. They're looking for another Gideon. They're looking for another deliverer who's going to expel the Romans. And what has happened? Instead of conquering the Romans, Jesus Christ had just succumbed to Rome's most humiliating form of capital punishment. In that day, uh, crucifixion was reserved for only a few select uh, classes of people, either the people who were the poorest of the poor, non-Roman citizens, slaves who rebelled against their master, or those who were committed, uh, those who were Roman citizens but were found guilty of high treason. Not just treason like paying, not paying your taxes or, you know, starting an insurrection, high treason like trying to kill the emperor, etc., etc. So at this point, Jesus, it, they believed he would throw the Romans out, but he got killed by Rome. That's an inversion of their hope. They think, oh, this guy is going to be our deliverer. He's going to be our savior. He's going to be the one who Yahweh uses to throw the Romans out. He had just been killed by Rome's worst weapon. I don't even know of a possible analogy. I mean, maybe a drone strike or something like that. Um, 
I, I have no clue what a, a popular analogy would be to explain to you how devastating it was that Jesus Christ fell under the severe, humiliating punishment of the empire who was oppressing Israel. It would be like in the movie Rambo, that Rambo just gets shot in the first scene without explanation or something like that. I, Luke Skywalker, you know, falls out of a spaceship or something. It, it is terrifying that, or falls into Darth Vader's hands and then is killed right away. That would be a depressing movie. There would be no more episodes. The point is that Jesus Christ, according to what the disciples could see by their circumstances, had just died the worst possible death for someone who was going to defeat the Romans. And then they go on to say, finally, the matter's pretty much sealed. It's been three whole days. If he was going to recover, he's certainly not recovering now. And Jesus, of course, always in the Gospels, he reserves his most harsh rebukes for the sins of unbelief. Not the sins that we commit out of our fleshly lusts or weakness of character, but rather the sin of unbelief in the Gospels is always treated the most harshly by Jesus. He says to them, Luke 24, 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus is saying that over and over again, every prophet has prophesied that Jesus, the Messiah, would have to suffer, and then after that, three days later, rise from the dead. He's he's condemning their, their doubt. Now, again, as I said, we should not disclose our, or we should not hide our doubts, but rather we should open them up to the investigation of uh, the Holy Spirit using the mirror of the word of God to illuminate what is going on in our heart. We don't ignore doubts as Christians. We're not just people who believe, put your head in the sand. If you don't really believe, if, if Christianity doesn't make sense, just keep doing the motions, uh, just keep living with the form of a Christian, but don't ever examine your doubts. I believe that Jesus Christ is condemning these doubts. And how can we ever condemn our doubts in order for God to deal with them if we just hide them? This is my, the greatest shock that come to skeptics or to people who are examining Christianity is the, the idea that we would actually advocate shine the light of Jesus Christ on your doubts, not just ignore them. I'm not getting you, I'm not trying to get you to uh, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm trying to convince you that you should place your trust in the Son of God. And that's totally different. You cannot fully place your trust in Jesus Christ if you still have lingering doubts of who he is and what he claims to have done for your, for, for you. Um, it, it just isn't the case that that's possible. And my point today is that you cannot trust in the word of Christ alone by just hearing the word, God must also do something for you. He says that you are slow of heart to believe that all, all of what was in the scriptures concerning the Messiah. These people are just like the Israelites in Egypt. There is an occupier. They're being treated harshly. They were being taxed harshly. The Romans uh, had effective martial law through a governor that they established. There was no true king of Israel. The king of Israel at the time was this Greek guy who married in. It was, it's kind of a confusing situation, but Israel cannot be Israel. And so these disciples are looking around at their national circumstances and saying, where is the salvation of God? And Jesus says that you, that they were slow of heart to believe. Now at this point, he then begins to tell them 
some extremely amazing things. Jesus doesn't leave them in unbelief. He actually causes them by the giving of his word to have reasons to trust in him. It says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Moses and the prophets is a way, it's a, it's a uh, phrase to describe the majority of the old covenant scriptures. And then it says, and in all the scriptures. So Jesus is, it is probably just hitting the highlights. I don't think he was, you know, speaking too quickly. Uh, it would take years to examine this idea that he interpreted to them all the things in all the scriptures. Now, that being said, that conversation would have gone on for a few hours. They're walking to another city that was 10 to 15 miles away. It would have taken a while, uh, at least a few hours. And in those few hours, he shows them every major theme in all of the Old Covenant, the writings at the time, uh, that were speaking about the Messiah and how he had to suffer and be raised from the dead three days later. And at this point, they still don't recognize him. Now, this obviously is a spiritual blindness. Like God revealing to Moses his nature as the God who remembers his covenant and delivers his people, Jesus, in this conversation, is demonstrating through the scriptures every, every single thing that was prophesied about him. Now, now, what that means is Jesus is saying Yahweh in the past had made promises to the patriarchs, and then Moses brought them out, and God fulfilled those promises. But in the midst of those promises, there were greater promises about his more complete, more future, more final salvation, which I, Jesus Christ, am the fulfillment of. That's what the Lord was saying to those two, those two men on that road. And in this place they still don't recognize him. Now, this is an amazing thing that happens. I don't know if you have ever lived with someone for more than a few years, probably your parents or maybe your spouse, but imagine this, living with someone for at least three years, and then while you're talking for multiple hours on a road, you don't know that they're that person. That is amazing. I mean, that's just unthinkable. And yet, these people, these two disciples, were so oppressed with their grief over all their hopes having been dashed that they were not able to look at a man who they had lived for three years, uh, who they lived with for three years, and recognize him speaking to them. They not only didn't recognize his face nor form and couldn't recognize his voice at this point. Now, this is an amazing thing that happens, but surely this is obviously a spiritual blindness. It says in verse uh, 30, Luke 24, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You see, it's not enough for you to read the Bible. Many believers think, oh, I'll just be a Christian off on my own. I won't go to church. I won't fellowship with other people. But it is not enough for you to read the word of God. It's not enough for you to hear the word of God and never recognize Christ in the covenant meal that he establishes. This is how we recognize Jesus, through the breaking of bread, when he opens up our eyes and lifts the veil 
off of us. That sign of grace that happens when Jesus Christ breaks the bread and gives it to you, that sign of grace, that symbol of grace is not a mere symbol, but it carries with it power and effective grace. It carries with it a a way of understanding Jesus that does not come from just reading the word. If it did, we wouldn't have church services and we would all just stay home and read our Bible. We'd quit our job or find some way to make money from reading the Bible and we would just read the Bible more. But God has created us as human beings to commune with him through the Holy Spirit. And that takes place not just in the reading of the word, but also in the breaking of bread. Until the breaking of bread, they don't recognize a man that they've spent three years living with. And this is not a simultaneous amnesia. It's not like both of the disciples just like couldn't recognize him for for some reason. I mean, that would be plausible if it was one person, but it's not plausible if it's two people. I don't know about you, but I've never had simultaneous amnesia with someone else. And I don't think such a thing has ever occurred. But it's not simultaneous amnesia. This is an absolute spiritual blindness from the doubt and the brokenness of spirit. Again, N.T. Wright's contribution, the resurrection surprised everybody. And so at this place, the disciples are, are broken in spirit. And the word of God, it says that they said that the word of God was burning within them, but they still didn't recognize Jesus Christ. My call to you today is that at the table, you recognize him. The breaking of bread, it, it, it causes us to have our eyes opened and our spirits are nourished at that table. And, and as we come today, I would encourage you to really believe. There, there are some people growing up in the church and they hear it's just a symbol. It's just this thing that we do to remember him. Yes, we do remember the Lord in it, but he also does truly come to us. That's why Paul says, if you eat in an unworthy manner, you're eating and drinking judgment unto yourself because Christ is really present in the elements. Now, we're not going to get into a discussion on how, but he really is present. And in that, he comes as Jesus Christ. And if you eat and drink his body and blood in an unworthy manner, God remains God. And he is a judging presence in you. But if you are coming to the table in faith, truly believing that Christ has broken bread for you, and you really are seeking to commune with him, then it is a wonderful, precious grace and contains with it a revelation of Jesus Christ that does not come through the reading of the word of God. Without Jesus breaking bread for us, both in this story and in real life, inviting us to eat with him, we can never recognize him. Jesus Christ performed, instituted the Eucharist before he went to the cross. Why did he do that? He did that because he wanted to tie in and say, I am the true Passover. I'm the true supper. And at the same time, he knew by the Holy Spirit that all the disciples would completely miss the actual event. That is, all the disciples, it said, were scattered, and none of them made it except for John. And John was actually, you know, a few hundred feet away. He wasn't very close. He knew, Jesus had supernatural knowledge given to him by the Holy Spirit, that all the disciples would miss the actual event. They wouldn't be present. They would be scared and they'd run away. They would all be scattered. And so he performs a sign, a symbol, a sacrament that demonstrates to the disciples what's going to take place. His body will be broken and his blood will be poured out like a drink offering. So today, as we come to the table, I want you to come expectantly. 
Now, if you do not actually put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you don't, uh, if you're not seeking to commune with him, don't come. Just wait. There's nothing, there is no shame in not coming to the table. But I do want you to come expecting to really commune with Jesus Christ. That this supper that we partake in is looking back not only to his death and resurrection, which he performed for us, but it's also looking forward to that day where we believe Jesus will return and we will commune with him for the rest of eternity. That's what we are entering into. And that comes with a revelation that does not come through the word of God. And that is nothing against the word of God. It's just not how Jesus Christ has decided to establish things. We must believe as we come to the table that we, were, we are going to see God in our midst, remembering his covenant, delivering us from bondage. My point today is that Jesus Christ going to the cross for you is a great word, and that is a great message of hope, but you cannot believe it unless he also opens your eyes and lifts your broken spirit. That's why I say grace always pre, uh, precedes law. It always precedes God's commandment. And you cannot fully trust in Christ unless he gives you the grace to do so. Your ears are closed, your eyes are not seeing, and we pray that he would open them. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Uh, We're going to, if someone could go get the...